1: How are you? How you been? So what do you do? Small talk is part of our lives, whether we like it or not. But do a lot of us
2: hate it because we're just simply asking the wrong questions? We all deal with the reality of getting older in different ways, but adding another number to our total every year is just a fact of being alive. But what would it be like if the total could go backwards? Well, South Korea just found out. And we go back into the
1: Commute archives on this 4th of July holiday week for a listener favorite. The countless fireworks tents you see will soon retreat into hibernation until next year. But where do they come from? And where do they go? We called an expert to get the inside and gross details on working at a seasonal fireworks tent.
2: All of that
1: on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. Jay, one of the most fun things about this podcast, in my opinion anyway, is the opportunities that many of our segments provide for us to highlight the differences between you and I. I mean, listeners send me notes about it all the time. One of those differences, though, is just our natural personalities, like we're just wired in different ways. And today we're going to highlight one of those ways, our love or hate relationship with small talk. So, Jay, my friend, tell our
2: listeners about your feelings on small talk to get us going. Well, I'm sure you're not surprised that I am just not very good at it. Uh, It's like disaster level bad at small talk. (laughs) Um, And I just feel uncomfortable making small talk in the first place, which is why it's so bad. I'm I'm not in my comfort zone uh, when I'm trying to talk to somebody. And Asking them about things that are just like mundane and I feel like I'm bothering them and it just I get in my head about it. So I'm not very good at it. Now you are like unreal good at small talk. Like it's scary how good you are at small talk. (laughs) Like it's weird. Like I've seen you chat up people. Uh, just get them to confess their deepest, darkest secrets (laughs) to you within 10 (laughs) minutes of meeting you. Uh, So that is a huge difference between us. Um, I often, if we're meeting a lot of people, we're together often kind of have to ride your coattails a little bit.
1: Hey, man, we lift each other up. That's (laughs) just that's how any good friendship is. And, And I will say, though, as an extrovert, I won't say that I actually love random small talk, whether I'm good at it or not. I mean, that may surprise you. I I love meeting new people, but I don't really care about the guy beside me on the airplane who just found a deal on a new pair of sandals at the duty-free shop. That's a true story, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) But, Jay, while research on the way people feel at large about small talk is spotty at best we do have some numbers to draw from, some data that can tell us how people really feel. A recent psychological study from the UK found that 74% of people who identify as introverts absolutely loathe small talk, while 23% of identifying extroverts actually hate it as well. So it's important to note that disliking small talk is not entirely just an introvert thing. A recent study by Harvard, though, is trying to perhaps shift the way that we think about why we might not like it. The study conducted by the Harvard Business Review suggests that the reason some people hate small talk so much is that they're simply asking the wrong questions. Across three separate studies that honed in on the actual questions that were being asked, taking into account things like quality of answer, length of conversation, and amount of follow-up questions, the research ultimately found that people like asking and being asked more specific questions. In fact, in one study that focused on speed dating, and the likelihood that the conversation would lead to a second actual real date, It found that the more questions that were being asked, well, that was the more likely that the pair would hit it off. And, you know, as a relationship junkie myself, I've long been interested in this kind of thing. In her fascinating book, Captivate, The Science of Succeeding with People, author Vanessa Von Edwards puts some actual ideas into action to see what leads to better, more meaningful relational experiences. In one especially fascinating study, Jay, she decides to go to business after-hour type mixers, a.k.a. your hell. (laughs) So basically social events where people all stand around, drink cocktails, and trade business cards. Well, she would go to these and commit to not saying a word as her study. Instead, she'd have the other person talk about themselves. So basically what she would do is she'd go to these business after hours, people would approach her like you do at one of these things, and she would hand them a business card type card that said, hey, I'm conducting an experiment and I can't talk tonight. However, I'd love to hear more about you. And Jay, believe it or not, people would just start talking. They'd talk so much, in fact, that they'd email her later. Uh, This is true. It's all in her book. They'd email her later and just say, hey, it was great to meet you. What a lovely conversation. But she didn't say a word. (laughs) It was just them talking to her. People love feeling like they're being heard and just talking about themselves.
2: Well, I think two people just like... People are dying to tell people things about themselves, you know? I mean, I think, like, people, and it's not in a, like, egotistical way. I think people just really have a lot they want to get out, you know? And it's like if you don't have close relationships and someone asks you, like, I can see a lot of people just, you know, turning the fire hydrant on and just, like, letting all that come out. Yeah, a
1: lot of people just feel like nobody's ever listening to them, which is probably true. But back to Harvard. Okay, so basically the research once again concluded that it's not small talk, it's us. So to change this, Harvard suggested figuring out what questions to get rid of, things like, so what do you do? And then figure out what questions to add, deeper questions that required some vulnerability. Well, Jay, a reporter and self-proclaimed small talk hater at Vice named Alex Fleming Brown, well, he decided to give it a try himself. Fleming Brown first decided which questions that were in the typical relationship quiver that he should give up. He landed on some that I think a lot of us use. So he was going to abandon using questions like, how's work? How about the weather? You been busy over there? And the classic, so how are you? He replaced these Jay with some of the suggestions from the Harvard Business Review research. Things such as, what excites you right now? What's something you're looking forward to? Where'd you grow up? And what's a charity that you support? Imagine being asked that. You're the, somebody <laughs> walks up to you the first question,
2: Hey, Jay, what's a charity that you support? I would, I would just panic. I would panic lie. I'd be like, <laughs> World Wildlife Foundation, like, and it would, just wouldn't even be true.
1: <laughs> well, Well, I mean, that's a good point, because it may not surprise you, Jay. All of these bombed, and they bombed so bad that they left Fleming Brown a bit disheartened. Not necessarily doubting the research, but doubting its real-life use, Fleming Brown concluded, and I quote, It appears I was too quick to judge small talk. Perhaps there's a certain beauty in the verbal ping pong that happens at first dates, conferences, and funerals. At least everyone cares about the weather, and it changes all the time. Small talk exists for a reason. It has conventions, and conventions can be followed competently. Sure, small talk is cheap, but aren't we all? And so Jay, I gotta say, I think I agree. I mean, do I prefer deep conversations? Well, yeah, I love them. But I don't need to necessarily know my barista's 10-year goals or hear about an upcoming colonoscopy from an insurance salesman who works across town. Both real stories.
2: (laughs) Well, yeah, I think you have to know your audience, you know, because I think if I'm uh, at a party and there's people there that I might kind of get along with because they they know somebody that I know or whatever and they're asking me things that are more deeper questions, I think most people are okay with like having those conversations and meeting in the middle. And that's a good thing. But like, if I'm at the grocery store and someone's like, Hey, what excites you right now? It's like, I don't want to tell you, (laughs) you know, like I'm busy. I'm in the middle of something. So Dave, every year we hit our birthday, we get older, we add another number to the total, uh, this week, actually, when you'll be listening to this, I'll be turning 34. So that's exciting. Hey. Um, we're uh, we're we're getting old, you know. We're starting to kind of get a little closer to the big four uh, zero. How you feeling? Uh, let's do a quick kind of check in here in your mid thirties. Well,
1: I've changed a lot over the last few years. I, I've changed how I feel about birthdays. I will be thirty six this year, and when I turned thirty, it was really hard. That was a tough birthday for me because yeah. you, you feel you're not that's really <laughs> young anymore it was for you. It it was, man. It was. I have a picture of
2: you with a hat on with the number 30, and you just look like the most, like like you look like someone has just ripped your entire soul out of your body. You look so crushed. And you're at a party for you.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was was a rough one. Um, But since then, I've really changed my perspective. And truly, birthdays are a gift. You know, you're not guaranteed anything, and each year of life, uh, not to get too sappy on our show, uh, but it's true. Each,
2: each year of life is a gift. Uh, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I think uh, as uh, whenever I was younger, I think birthdays were a little bit more of a kind of a celebratory thing. Now, I think they're more reflective, like as you get a little bit older, but in a good way, not in a bad way. Uh, so speaking of getting older and adding numbers to our total, um, did you hear about everyone in South Korea getting younger? Have you heard about this? No. But I'm all I'm here for. (laughs) Well Dave, to understand why everyone in South Korea is now a year younger, we need to delve into a recent change in their legal system. In January twenty twenty three, South Korea implemented a new age calculation system. This system aims to address a long-standing cultural tradition that considers a person to be one year old at birth and adds another year to their age at the beginning of each calendar year. So for example, Dave, if a baby was born in Korea, they would be considered a year old. And then when the clock strikes midnight on their first birthday, they would actually be considered to be two years old. Culturally speaking, this practice has ancient roots in East Asia, which generally considers time spent in the womb as part of your total age. Now, the previous system obviously caused confusion, especially in international settings where age is calculated differently. So the Korean government decided to align their age calculation with international standards. Under the new system, which took effect last week, a person's age is determined solely by their birth year, just like in many other countries. So obviously, Dave, there will be some effects here, because practically speaking, everyone in Korea just got one or two years younger, depending on when their birthday is. Like, think about that. The age adjustment will have implications for legal matters. It could affect employment conditions contracts, retirement eligibility, and even the legal age for activities like drinking and voting. Now, the new law does attempt to make some shifts to make sure kids don't miss starting school and to make sure certain rights, like drinking alcohol, aren't stripped from people who fall under the old age requirement to try to close up some of those gray areas. Additionally, this age reduction could have significant impact on South Korea's population dynamics. South Korea has been grappling with a declining birth rate and an aging population, which poses challenges to the economy and social welfare systems. Some sociologists have suggested that by reducing the age of the entire population, it may create the illusion of a younger society, potentially leading to renewed interest in family planning and encouraging a sense of vitality among the people." Furthermore, this development sparks pretty intriguing discussions surrounding personal identity and how age shapes our perceptions of ourselves and others. People may question the influence of age on their achievements and goals and even personal satisfaction. It opens up a lot of conversations about what age means and how society constructs it and then perceives it. Because Dave, in South Korea, age is a little more determinant of status than maybe it is here in the West. Hierarchical society is sort of structured around specifically age and determines how you address someone. South Koreans even typically ask people their age before their name to decide how to address them. Many Koreans may actually continue to use their old age in social and even professional settings just because of the status tied to an older age. But Dave, to me, this is just a fascinating thing. I'm trying to imagine how it would play on this side of the world. And even though it's only a year or two, I feel like the ripple effects would be much bigger than that.
1: Well, what if you qualified to do something like vote? And then all of a sudden you think you're 18, you're heading to the polls and then all of a sudden, you're 17. <laughs> you can't vote. Or you're trying to buy a pack of cigarettes. How old do you have to be to
2: buy cigarettes? Uh, At 18? I, th- I think they upped it, but I'm not 100% 21? sure. Yeah. Well,
1: let's just say, I mean, you're headed out to get some smokes with your boys. <laughs> and next thing you know, you're 20. You're not 21 anymore.
2: I, and it's like the law is really complicated because they're trying as hard as they can to like make sure that they take all of those gray areas out of there <laughs> to make sure that like, <laughs> like imagine if you retired last year, you know, like you hit the retirement retirement age and then all of a sudden <laughs> I like, need, to need work. you back need you back at work on Monday <laughs> now you got another apparently,
1: year now apparently birthday depression is an actual like clinical it's it's recognized oh, as a type of depression oh i
2: believe that 100% believe that um, yeah.
1: and so Psych central uh, a a resource for people that suffer from from depression has a bunch of resources and a bunch of ideas of how to beat birthday depression uh, my favorite one is this. So uh, a recommended strategy from Psych Central is to beat birthday depression, you need to verbalize your birthday wishes.
2: So I've been doing that for years. I've been told that you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to keep it all in. That's what I was well, told ever since I was a kid. And then,
1: and maybe that's why you have some deep-seated birthday depression. <laughs> You've been denied. So you're
2: telling me Like when you sit down To have your birthday dinner And they bring you the cake And you're going to blow out the candles You like yell out What your wish is Like yeah. you just tell everybody You go instead of,
1: <laughs> instead of like praying it or, or saying it in your head You go I'd like a million dollars And then you blow your <laughs>
2: So Dave, we're a little bit past the 4th of July, and uh, this is when we as a nation shoot off a lot of fireworks. Are you a fireworks guy? The older I get,
1: the less I like fireworks, which is, it makes me feel very much like the get off my lawn kind of guy. But what shocks me, and I know that you're going to get into this, what shocks me is how many firework tents exist in every single town in America.
2: Yeah, I realized that I had crossed a threshold this year. Uh, You know, I used to shoot off fireworks with friends in high school and stuff like that. And then this year, there were people in my neighborhood shooting them off at like 10 o'clock at night on July 6th. and my kids were not happy about it, and I was not happy about it. And, you know, I realized that there had been a sea change in the way that I saw fireworks, and that now I sort of see them as a nuisance, whereas before I thought they were kind of cool. You mentioned tents, and uh, we started talking about it, and I just got really interested in finding out, like, where do these come from? Dave, Americans actually spend around $1.5 billion a year on fireworks, and most of that is clustered around the 4th of July. So, The business is definitely profitable, but it's also sort of a gold rush. You know, you make the vast majority of your profits in a very small window. And while the profits are high, you also have to deal with the local and state laws that deal with firework distribution, which can vary not just from state to state, but also from city to city. You know, many cities limit the number of stands that can be present at one time and limit the dates in which the products can even be sold, which is why you often see pop-up tents and stands as opposed to physical stores. And not all stands are independent operations, though. Some larger companies like Phantom Fireworks, which is uh, the largest distributor of fireworks in the United States, they have standalone stores, but they also set up pop-up shops throughout the country to meet demand during the 4th of July. And entrepreneurs who choose to participate can contact a distributor to sell their products, purchase a package and signage, sell what they can, and then pocket the profit. Typically, fireworks selling windows only run for one week. So a downpour or a scorching hot day during that holy week, it could cost your stand 15 to 20% of your yearly profits in just one day of bad luck. Then you probably have to pay a fee to rent the location alongside the road to catch traffic. You have to avoid getting shut down for violating one of the many laws regarding selling fireworks. And when all is said and done, you have a risky yet potentially very profitable adventure. Uh, Many people who run fireworks stands report marking their products up thousands of percent of what they paid for the inventory. And ultimately, though, Dave, it boils down to the window. Most people who run a fireworks stand don't do it to make their yearly income. Most people do it to rake in a few thousand dollars in the summer when the demand is high.
1: Well, you know, Jay, you and I can say whatever we want about the fireworks industry, but we've never worked in it. Thankfully, my longest friend, my best friend, Dave, actually sold fireworks at one of these tents for a summer and I caught up with them a couple days ago in preparation for this segment to get an expert's opinion. I wanted an expert to weigh in on what it's actually like to work for one of these companies. So Dave, tell us, what is it actually like running a fireworks tent?
0: They essentially drop off a tractor trailer, a shipping container full of fireworks. They, they drop it off and they set up a tent and that's it. And you have two weeks to figure everything out. And you have a porta john that they give you, and they clean it out once uh, during a two weeks duration. <laughs> and it's ninety degrees, and you sit in the sun. And people come in and ask you what every single firework does, and you have no information. And so you make answers up as the two weeks go on, and you just and you just hope to God that people want to buy fireworks. I'm assuming you would uh, definitely do this again. No, I would never do this again. The thing about the Portageon is is 100% true. They clean it out once during your 2-week period and so you keep getting gradually more disgusted with the situation because you're having to use the same toilet over and over and so you know it's your own filth that you're like surrounded by. So we were so excited to have our toilet emptied out halfway through, and we were like, this is going to be so much better inside. And before we had a chance to use our toilet, a bum had stopped by and asked if he could use it. And to just keep it simple, he completely destroyed the outhouse and didn't use toilet paper. And so my first trip to the bathroom after it had been cleaned, the place is already a total wreck.
1: And that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast network. We're on social. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Trout. We'll see you next week. What would you say the best thing you ever got for your birthday is? Uh... Let me think. It should be the cameo I purchased for
2: you from, <laughs> from Chris, Chris Hansen <laughs> from To Catch a Predator. You know, that and, that is definitely, I mean, if it's not my favorite, it's definitely the most unique thing I've ever gotten. Like, and I don't know if that'll ever be beaten.
1: And you didn't give him much information. You just said, like, hey, this is for my buddy Jay. It's for his birthday. And then it would say, what's something unique about him? And I said, about you, I said, well, he's an Eagle Scout. <laughs> and so if you remember, he did a fake like to catch a predator like he was catching you doing something and he called you, I think Eagle Scout Pervert or something was like you're pretending like that was your screen name. I oh, I remember he incredible. like looked
2: into my uh, into my eyes to the camera. He was like, is that funny to you? Do you think that's funny that that's your screen name? And I felt like I was going to jail or something.